This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, Pratusha Yalamanchi. I'm a graduating medical student here at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and an MBA student at the Wharton School. The Business of Healthcare is live every Tuesday at noon Eastern right here on Sirius XM 111. Thank you for joining. If you have a question or comment during today's show, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. Our phone lines are open. So today we have a really interesting discussion about diversity in healthcare venture capital. Specifically, we'll be talking to three women who are leaders in the healthcare venture capital space and learn from their combined experiences in healthcare VC. In fact, I was adding it up, and together they have combined nearly a century of experience in the field. So joining us on the phone for the next hour is Annie Lamont, founder and managing partner at Oak HCFT. Oak HCFT is a venture capital fund focusing on healthcare and fintech with offices in both Connecticut and Boston. Also on the phone is Camille Samuels, a partner at the venture capital firm Venrock. Camille is based in Silicon Valley and has focused on biotech and consumer health investing. And our third guest is Adele Oliva, a partner and co-founder of 1315 Capital. A native of Philadelphia, Adele's firm, Philadelphia-based firm, focuses on investing in healthcare as well. So to get things started, um, Annie, uh, I'd love to start with you. Uh, so what brought you to healthcare venture capital? So I, I originally started in technology investing. Um, I was at a boutique investment bank uh, venture firm right out of Stanford in San Francisco uh, doing technology, but I really, was, I really wanted to get into the venture industry. That was very clear after two years of working with entrepreneurs. Um, and through a friend who worked at NEA, got introduced to a venture firm in Westport, Connecticut at that time, Oak Investment Partners. Um, and I, uh, I, you know, it didn't matter where they were, but they were one of the top five venture groups on the East Coast. And I was going to, I saw a door open, I just ran through it. Um, so I moved from San Francisco to Connecticut. My friends thought I was crazy. Um, and uh, and we at that that year we founded Genzyme with an entrepreneur they'd worked with before, um, and I it was really interesting. But but watching um, the development of Genzyme, the interest and explosion in the biotech industry at that time, I just was innately more interested in what was going on in healthcare than I was uh, investing in the you know next uh, disk drive company at that time. So <laughs> I um, I founded the healthcare group. At, uh, at Oak, and um, you know, subsequently founded my own firm um, around healthcare and fintech. That's such a fascinating experience getting to see Genzyme and the evolutionary evolution of the biotech industry. Uh, I, w- I was reading that eight percent of partners at top VC firms are women. Uh, what was your path to getting there? Path to getting to to becoming um, a partner. To that, to becoming a partner. So, you know, I think, I, one, it was lucky. It was a little bit um, at that time, uh, again, I was made a partner when I was 30. And what I've always said is I started at Oak when I was about 25. Um, and I think they knew that if you were a partner, you had agency. Um, and sure. people, you know, you could write the check. You could, you know, you were seen from the, from the entrepreneur's perspective as somebody who could make decisions. Uh, and I think it was incredibly important in my career um, that I had that uh, respect early, particularly as a woman. Um, they knew I was a decision maker. Um, it was uh, a perhaps even less competitive field then with um, the money mattering, mattering more than it does now in terms of the entrepreneur having much more, um, uh, you know, the, the power shift and sort of move to the, the makers uh, as opposed to the investors. Um, and uh, I think it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, I, I never actually felt uh, that being a woman was a, a challenge, uh, to tell you the truth at that time. You know, once I became a partner, um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I felt like I had uh, the power of the pen. 
Wow. To be partner at age 30, that's very impressive. Um, Adele, I'd love to hear how that compares with your own experience in healthcare VC. Yeah, so um, I got into healthcare venture capital in 1997 in Silicon Valley. Uh, Before business school, I was in banking, and then post-business school was at Baxter Healthcare. And there was a program called the Kaufman Fellows Program. Um, So I joined what was at that time a large firm and remains a very large firm called Apex Partners in their Silicon Valley office. And through this Kaufman Fellows Program, it was my entree into the, the industry. And um, I had fantastic mentors at Apex. Um, my background in both finance and healthcare with Baxter was a very strong combination for commercial stage investing. And um, I was promoted from associate to partner in about three years. So, um, uh, you know, also a um you know great career transition and as andy annie said um the opportunity to have a bit more gravitas at the table um in terms of identifying opportunities and also being a board member yeah i definitely feel like there's a theme of the gravitas and power dynamics of being on the funding side of the table. Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We'd love to hear about your own path to healthcare venture capital. Sure, there there are actually a lot of similarities in terms of once I got into the business, the value of mentors and the speed to promotion. I was promoted, they told me I'd become a partner in six months. Um, I became a partner in the next fund, which was a year, year and a half after joining. And I remember at that six-month point when they told me I was going to be a partner, I assumed it was venture partner. And amusingly, I, um, I didn't ask a follow, the follow-up question, what do you mean by partner or anything like that? It <laughs> felt like I was going to jinx it. Uh, but the weirder part about my journey into venture is I thought – um, venture was a temporary stick for me. I, I actually thought I was doing it for a couple of years, and I still my goal was still to be a CEO in the healthcare arena. Sure. But within three days of joining a venture capital firm, I fell in love with the job. Oh wow! So, you know, all of us, or many of us, when we're young, have these elaborate plans in life. None of mine have worked out as I as I planned, <laughs> but um, but it's still been a wonderful and interesting life. Absolutely, I think that as a graduating business school student, I I think that myself and my classmates can definitely speak to like the dream of being a healthcare CEO or an entrepreneur. Um, Camille, what was the transition to feeling like being on the other side of the funding table and being in venture was the right place for you? So the first transition came when I realized that venture capital was different from other forms of finance. I, I joke that we don't actually do finance if we're at the early stage. You know, the, our spreadsheets are three lines in length, and sure. most of the time you can build a model in your head. <laughs> and, uh, and at Venrock, not a single one of my partners even has a day of investment banking experience, right? It's just, what we really are doing is getting a certain portion of a pie by dint of our ownership, and and our job is to grow the pie. And the pie growing is, you know, helping your company in any way you can, but in many ways it can be operational. Um, the shift for me was was realizing that venture was could be a business-building activity instead of just a sort of moving pawns around finance activity. And that's not to denigrate what finance is. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, The next shift came and just being in the job. Within instance, I fell in love with the job of being a venture capitalist. I think the diversity of activities, the the variety um, was just fascinating for me. I love being intellectually challenged. And I, I love the way uh, venture capital has been practiced in the two firms where I've worked. So I worked in, originally in a firm called Verson Ventures, and now I'm at Benrock. 
and in both cases, we usually don't own more than 20, at most 30% of a company, and our job isn't to, we don't have control. Um, we almost don't have control intentionally. Our job is to uh, use influence and, frankly, good ideas and helpfulness to have an impact on the company, and I find that intellectually and sort of EQ interesting. Uh, and I loved that about the job from, from very early on. Yeah, that level of impact must be incredibly rewarding. Um, when I when we were planning this show, I, we wanted to do a show on healthcare venture capital, and we've been doing a, a series on women in healthcare leadership, and um, it felt appropriate to feature women who are leaders in the healthcare venture capital space, and. We found all three of you, fortunately, and I later learned from our producer that all of you know each other. Um, how did that happen, Annie? Well, um, so I haven't actually met Kim, Kimmy. Um, I have, um, so this is a really nice opportunity to start a dialogue. <laughs> uh, Adele and I uh, have known each other for years. Um, and so, you know, partly being on the East Coast, um, it is funny though because people just assume that other, that, you know, that I will know all the other women in venture capital, um, sure. and you know, you you don't. Um, but what's exciting is I do feel like there is a community of women developing. Um, I will, uh, you know, sort of tell a story on myself, and that probably I don't know how long ago, 15, 20 years ago, I was on the executive board of the NBCA, and I was running the annual meeting. Um, and there was this, uh, maybe Adele remembers this, you know, they used to have the, like the women's cocktail party at the NBCA. And I was like, well, there are about three women that are legitimate <laughs> in venture capital. So I am not going to be holding it. You're like, boom, you know, only a woman could actually cancel the women's cocktail hour uh, at the NBCA. Um, and the cool thing is, you know, 20 years later, there actually is a group and a cohort that may not all be senior partners that are you know, partners and, you know, and a really great group of women coming up um, that are, you know, super legitimate. Uh, and as another woman said to me, A-plus players, because you got to be, there are a lot of B players in, in the world uh, who are men, but you got to be an A player to actually be in this game to be a woman. So um, so I, I think there is, you know, a transformation happening. Um, uh, I'm ex excited about it. Awesome. Annie, it's interesting you say that because, um, I often say that if you meet a woman in a senior role, there's a very high likelihood that she's exceptional because they're, um, you know, to your point, is typically you need to be and um, the screening process of getting there. So I completely agree with you on that point. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, I'm glad that Annie and Camille, this is an opportunity for you guys to connect and meet each other. Uh, you're all three pioneers in the field and leading the way for women to follow you um, to sort of go off of that point of like needing to be uh, of what you touched on of being the best um, to advance your career. Do you, uh, Adele, did you feel like you faced any unique barriers um, in your career? If so, what might they have been? They don't necessarily have to be gender related. Um, I'd say I've had a lot of great mentors. I've, I've been someone who has, uh, I'm a believer in targeting mentors versus um, having mentors assigned. And with that, I have had incredible mentors like Alan Patrickoff, for example, who was the founder of Apex and Graycroft, who is completely um, blind to what anyone is and very merit-based in his decision process. So starting at APAX, it was um, helpful to have such a great leader. And if you look out into the industry, so many women have been mentored under Alan. Um, I would say what's interesting is Cammie and I were just emailing each other last week about maternity leave. And oh, um, I was, I had to come up with the maternity leave at APAX because I was the first investment professional to get pregnant there. So. Oh, wow. Um, you certainly have unique situations you need to uh, navigate with with being a woman. But in saying that, um, you know, I I believe contributed significantly um, to the firm and have a lot of great colleagues 
um, as well as a lot of great investments that were done while I was there. And since starting 1315 Capital, I'm very focused on a diverse workforce where we can leverage A players across um, both gender and race. Absolutely. I'd love to hear more about that. your experience establishing maternity leave at Apex. For those just joining in, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratushi Alamanchi. I'm joined today by three leaders in the healthcare venture capital space, Annie Lamont of Oak HCFT, Camille Samuels of Venrock, and Adele Oliva of 1315 Capital. Feel free to join our conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. Adele, you were uh, just sharing uh, how you were you had to have conversations around establishing maternity leave at Apex Partners, a healthcare private equity firm that you worked at. Uh, what were those conversations like? Well, it was um, the venture community is a very close knit community, or at least it was back um, back uh, you know fifteen twenty years ago. And it was just reaching out to colleagues and trying to identify what practices there were, but there there weren't a lot out there. So identifying three or four groups, hopefully Cami had an easier time <laughs> getting comparables today um, with what the norm is. That's right. Uh, there, there are now more data points. I also had an easier time than you, Adele, in that uh, when I joined the first firm I joined, Versant Ventures, there were actually two female partners, and one of the female partners, Becky Robertson, had, had actually taken maternity leave. So there was a precedent uh, before me. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to get, just bring some numbers into this the discussion. Um, on the funding side, about 10% of partners at venture capital firms are women. And on the funded side, studies have shown that 97% of VC-funded businesses have male chiefs executives. And businesses with all male teams were more than four times as likely to receive VC funding compared to teams with at least one woman. These are statistics for venture capital in general, but in healthcare as well, despite making up more than half of the healthcare workforce, women typically represent about 20% of executives and 21% of board members at Fortune 500 companies. I wanted to hear all three of your experiences and reactions to these numbers. Do these numbers of disparities in healthcare and venture capital surprise you? Uh, can I start with you, Cami? Sure. So, do they surprise me? Actually, 20% female representation on a board sounds high compared to my. <laughs> usually, I'm the only female in the room, and that's fine. Or I'm the only female on the board. Sure. So. And even the 10% number sounds high. What I have heard, and I know there's been a concerted effort to try to bring more women into venture firms in the last year or so, but the data that I'd heard that for funds over $100 million in size, which is still pretty small, uh, the female representation was more like 7%. And so I still feel like I could host a party at my house and have all the female <laughs> venture capitalists in it, and I don't have a big house. Uh, so those numbers don't surprise me. I, I will say in terms of the entrepreneurial world, which, which is, actually matters more to me, um, I see very few founding teams with, female founders and even fewer founding teams with female CEOs. And I don't know if it's as low as 3%, but it's certainly not higher than 5%. Uh, why do you think that is, that there are so few founding teams with female members? I would love to involve the other panelists in that conversation. <laughs> I will say one uh, reason is that uh, we women, in addition to facing unconscious bias and so on, also hold ourselves back. I will not, I cannot tell you how many people, for instance, in the biotech space, um, guys who are chief business officers will send me their CV, you know, and, and tell me they want to quote unquote pick my brain about how their next job, which is going to be a CEO, whereas women super cautiously ask if I can give them a moment because maybe they might kind of sort of be ready to be a president. And it's just amazing how the difference 
in in when we are ready as women to to anoint ourselves in that CEO title. Yeah, I can't. I, it's I completely oh, go ahead, agree with that. Please. Sorry. Um, well, I completely agree with that. I do think this issue of the number of female venture capitalists versus you know number of female entrepreneurs is directly correlated. Um, you know, one, I do think we have to have more female venture capital, female entrepreneurs, uh, and you know, in conjunction, that will lead to actually more female venture capitalists. But it is the phenomenon that you're talking about, Cami, where I, for somehow women, I don't know if we're taught from day one or it's inherent. Uh, a little bit more check the box, a little bit more, you know, like looking for approval, a little bit more, you know, in terms of, you know, sort of breaking out and feeling like we are owed. I mean, we, I always joke, my, my husband jokes about it, whereas, you know, guys that always walk into a room, they think they're the best looking guy in the room and they deserve the best looking girl <laughs> in the room, you know, <laughs> whereas, you know, the girl, the most beautiful girl in the room walks in and you know, is not thinking about, you know, that about herself. So, you know, I just think there is there is something there, and I think it is cultural, uh, you know, as well as genetic, and we need to, like, fight it and push it. And I would say, you know, even in my own career, I was managing partner of the last firm, Oak Investment Partners, and one of four evil managing partners. But honestly, I, I'm sure that if I was a guy, that my group would have split off and created a new company uh, far sooner than I did. You know, I mean, I just don't know what that is, but it's almost like, you know, we not only had to have a track record, we had to have years and years of a track record that was, you know, like superlative, you know, to sort of go out and, you know, go deep and go on our own. And, you know, and that just, I mean, it's amazing how many guys go out, raise a fund, or as you say, or have no experience as a CEO, believe they should be one. And it takes that, I mean, it takes that sort of chutzpah, and it takes that belief to have other people believe in you. Um, and so I'm, I'm not denigrating it in the sense that, you know, you, you need to do that, you, know, you need to have that uh, to actually lead. Um, and so we just, we need to engender more of that and that ability to be confident without being arrogant. Um, and I, we, we just need to promote that in women. Yeah, you, Annie. Uh, oh, go I, ahead. I, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I completely agree with the check the box phenomena. And um, when we were starting 1315 Capital and we had, um, we were very close to the conclusion of our fundraise. Um, an LP had said we have so much like um, trouble getting into these, you know, great women-led firms. And my response was, when a woman steps out to start a firm, often every check is box, uh, every box is checked. Her, she has a track record, she has the experience, she has the deal flow. She has leadership. She has a team that is likely going to work along with her and follow her. And there's that scarcity effect and opportunity to be able to back that individual. And what I've been doing is um, I, I'm sure Annie and Cami have the ex same experience that every um, person's daughter, niece, friend's daughter, niece, son, cousin, it doesn't matter. There are so many young people that I talk to on a weekly basis. And I really encourage, uh, particularly the younger women from a career standpoint, to put themselves out there and to push themselves from a career standpoint. And think about, um, if I think about the three women at this, you know, on this line where we were at 35, where we were at 40, and the leadership roles that we had at that point, encouraging other young women and men, but particularly women, to go out and really have the confidence to take on the partnership role um, when they're ready to have that. And to take on that CEO role or CBO role, I was, on the, um, I was talking to a friend of mine just last week who's an executive in pharma, and um, she's a head of like VP of marketing and sales and there's a CEO role and I said do you want to be should I put your name forward on this and she was like absolutely and I was so proud of her that she wanted to step out and take that role and that afternoon I was emailing a friend of mine about this individual that's such a great it's story funny, Adele, oh, oh, go ahead. I, I don't encounter I think maybe because my kids are a little bit younger I don't encounter the 15 year old 
girls and I look forward to, to when I will and when I get to help them. I spend gobs of time with millennial women, though, <laughs> trying to root them on. And what are those conversations like with millennial women? You know, generally, when I find them or they find me, uh, at that point, they've already shown a fair amount of chutzpah, right? There's something absolutely that helped me encounter them, right? Um, so I, I aspire to, to doing it where Adele is, is doing it, being more impactful, maybe even making a difference in the trajectory. But as far as what those conversations look like, of course, there's a portion of it that's um, encouraging. And one of the things, so I started the, the part of the conversation where I said that we women hold ourselves back. And I want to make sure it's clear that none of the three of us are blaming women. Um, and yeah. one of the, we, we had unconscious bias training at Venerock several months ago. And there was a concept that I'd never thought about um, that I learned in the process of called that they called belonging. And it, the notion was that if you're, you do, you're not in the represented group, if, you're not, if you don't feel like you belong, you spend a lot of time and a lot of cognitive energy monitoring the room, monitoring the environment as to whether or not you're getting signals of belonging. And it was a really powerful framework for me because you know, frankly, I was listening to a podcast this morning, an Adam Grant podcast, where he, where the astronaut being interviewed said she hadn't planned to be an astronaut her whole life until she saw a female astronaut because it wasn't her, right? And so we, the, the role of there being mirrors out there um, that can give women that sense of, oh, I can do that um, is really important. And so part of my role when I'm one-on-one -on -one with, with a millennial is, um, is absolutely affirming that they can do it. Absolutely. The role modeling that all three of you can provide for women seeking to be in positions of leadership in healthcare is so impactful. We need to take a short break, um, but stay with us. I want to thank you all for taking the time to be on the show with us. I'd love to go into more of a discussion about the sentiment of belonging and something we've heard in other shows, which is women in positions of leadership in healthcare kind of feeling like imposters despite their accomplishments. Um, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. For, jo for those just joining in, we're discussing women in healthcare venture capital today. We're speaking to three leaders in the field, Annie Lamont of Oak HCFT, Cami Samuels of Van Venrock, and Adele Oliva of 1315 Capital. Feel free to join our conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. So before our break, um, there, we were having a great discussion. Can, Adele, you had mentioned how um, Oftentimes, when women leaders in healthcare present themselves, they've checked all the boxes were the words you've used of having the experiences and the right team and everything they need to sort of succeed and fulfill their role. And Cami, you talked about this need of belonging or the sentiment of feeling like you are a part of your work environment and are welcome there based on seeing similar people that look like you around the table. And one of the things that came up um, throughout our series of women and le woman leaders in healthcare is that something the people, a number of people reference this idea of the imposter syndrome of despite their numerous qualifications and their experiences that made them ready and able to execute their role they often felt like they may or may not live up to it or they may not they might have gotten it by accident and that they were sort of this imposter in the room do you think that um, it is an issue of how women in leadership perceive themselves or is it an issue of how they might be perceived if um, they don't check all of the boxes and I'd like to start with you Annie so I I mean, I don't think that most women, and I doubt of the three of us, I don't want to speak for everybody in this call, but 
suffer from that. I really don't. <laughs> I agree. Sorry, but yeah, it's okay. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like I, I've loved what I've done. I've earned what you know, and, and we're and we're earning it every day, right? I mean, absolutely. None of us are resting on our lawyer laurels. We're, you know, we are out there, and we know that this is a business, a very competitive world, and we're earning it every day. But I don't, you know, it's interesting. I went to a woman's a conference, uh, Health Evolution Summit last week, and there was a women's uh, part to it. Uh, and there were a number of women there. And, you know, Gal Boudreau, the new CEO of Anthem, who's awesome, you know, sort of led a conversation. And, but there was this whole conversation about vulnerability and making yourself vulnerable and authentic. And, and what I don't want to do and what I don't think women need is we're not victims, right? Like we just, you know, we can't sort of, I mean, we, there are challenges, absolutely, we are, um, but we cannot feel like victims or we will not succeed. And we can't, I don't want to hear from a Harvard Business School professor that women are opting out of private equity because they think it's not a hospitable environment for women. I mean, we have to make it more hospitable. And I think venture, maybe more so than maybe PE. Um, and, you know, and that's our job. And I think, I think what Cammie was really talking about uh, was that, honestly, we just need more, we need more women and minorities around the table. Um, because you do, you know, people end up modeling off of others' behavior, and if it's all male and you're the only woman, uh, you know, maybe you know you're going to fit in in ways you might not, you know, in a, if there were more women around the table. Um, and I, you know, to sort of extend this, I think the important thing that's happening in the industry is that the people who have the money, the limited partners who give venture capitalists the money, who then give it to, in this food chain, then give it to entrepreneurs, many more of them are women. Um, and that's a really important movement. And many more, you know, they represent pension funds and endowments that care about these issues. So, you know, I think that they are looking for and demanding a different look amongst the LPs. And mostly they're looking for returns. They don't want compromises on that. But they are asking the question. Um, and I think having the conversation about, you know, more women in VC is being really is being productive because people are looking around the table, and if there's no woman, they're at least starting with one, you know, and then there, but there has to be, you know, more than that. I mean, it cannot be a token woman around the table. I mean, we, you know, just really need to start this, this movement, um, and the more women we'll have, the more normal and natural we'll be, and the more entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs will be comfortable pitching to VCs, and, you know, it will, it will eventually correct itself as long as we're focused on the issue. And Patricia, if I can jump in, it's Adele. Um, Annie, I completely agree. Um, I often talk about there are only so many A-plus individuals in this world, and if you are only hiring one gender or one race or one gender and race, you're significantly limiting the pool. And so the importance of diversity is the benefit of identifying A-plus players across the board, whether it's within our firms or within our portfolio company leadership and then within those companies. And I just wanted to clarify the point on checking the box that I was making was that I felt that um, oftentimes women are, are checking all those boxes, but the result, I believe, is oftentimes they have a higher, higher likelihood of success because they are well prepared for the role, good or bad. Um, they have the experience the context and the opportunity then to capture um, a market, um, an investment opportunity, or lead a team successfully. Adele, yeah, that's. The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that the. I think the response you got to the phrase imposter syndrome is simply like these three people are authentic people, right? So the imposter has this flavor of inauthenticity that doesn't, that I can't wear. Do I sometimes wake up saying to myself, this is a hard job and I'm not always sure I'm good at it? Sure, absolutely. Do I think I do that more than my male partners do? No. Um, I, I, my hunch is those women feeling that imposter syndrome. It's primarily because of this belonging issue. 
Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. When I heard you bring up the belonging issue, I immediately remembered a healthcare services CEO we had on the show, on the show before, who brought up the phrase imposter syndrome, and I, I definitely think they're correlated. And I, I really like the phrasing that you used of, in, of belonging instead, and, um, and sort of role modeling and trying to achieve that, Adele. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you are funding people, do you consider things like gender? I consider finding the absolute best leadership team to get my investors the best return. And a lot of times, it is um, individuals of both genders. So um, there are so many terrific uh, male CEOs, but also uh, female CEOs that I've been fortunate to work with. And I would say people, I realized it when um, with hiring, people tend to, it's, it's very natural, people tend to hire sometimes back individuals similar to themselves. Um, I've seen it a lot with the smaller firms there's a culture, a certain university, a certain um, athleticism or music, musicality, depending upon the firm and the type of individuals that they like. And there's a clustering effect that occurs with that. Um, when I think about hiring or, or backing someone, a lot of times it's to Cammie's point of this unconscious bias probably that's occurring and having people realize the success of many, many gender, uh, you know, both genders, many races, and having these individuals at the table. There's, uh, there's an article just today, it's so funny, uh, on, the, on the plane this morning, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, and there's a special journal report on small business. And it, the, um, it's on venture capitalists, and it's a full page, two articles, top and bottom, and it's four males in this report. So, um, oh, interesting. You know, having yeah, it was very interesting and timely. So I, I've had the opportunity to back people um, like Mary Fisher, who's an exceptional <laughs> CEO. Uh, Cami knows well. Um, yeah, I saw her last you know, week. Cindy Whitehead, exceptional. Um, I'm working a deal right now with another female CEO. And what I hope to see over time is not only more gender diversity, but there's also a need for greater racial diversity. And uh, we should emphasize that the data does support diversity as an economic good, not just a social good. And um, hopefully listeners would care about it even if it was just a social good. But my understanding of the data is that if you don't care about innovation and creativity in your company, then actually diversity doesn't matter. But if you do care, and most young companies care, most venture capital firms care, then diversity is a clear economic good because diversity does yield higher innovation, higher creativity. And Cammie, right? It's because you're going to end up with B players. You're not going to have all A players if you don't have that diversity. There's only so many exceptional people. And diversity of background, by definition, brings orthogonal experiences to a brainstorming session. Absolutely. Completely agree. Absolutely, yeah. There have been a n- number of studies that have shown that diversity in leadership roles improves financial and operational performance for firms at various stages. And um, actually, one of the questions I used to ask was why gender diversity in healthcare leadership even matters. Um, but Kim, you touched on that perfectly. Um, and in healthcare specifically, people often say that a healthcare leadership team should reflect and its overall workforce should represent the diversity of potential patient populations so, because they can best um, meet those needs. So I think all of those things are definitely true. I wanted to sort of steer away from just um, sort of gender and leadership roles and ask you as just leaders in healthcare venture capital, like what excites you um, 
in healthcare VC now? Are there certain industry tre- trends or spaces that are exciting and things you'd want to share with listeners? Um, Cami, I can start with you. Sure. So we all operate in slightly different spaces, although, as you can tell, we've bumped into each other or Annie's bumped into several of my partners multiple times over. My emphasis is I sort of major in biotech and then minor in medical devices and consumer health. I will say that I do have themes. I have areas that tend to roll my socks up and down. Um, longevity <laughs> is, an, uh, is an example of an area that um, is just so interesting to me right now in area of science. Having said that, we at Venrock are also consciously opportunistic in the way we invest as well. Um, one of our core theses is one, you're better calibrated as an investor if you're somewhat eclectic. Um, and two, that entrepreneurs who are deep in the trenches will do a better fo- job of finding really novel, really different uh, areas to invest in than you know seven venture capital partners. Uh, and so I've always been humbled by the thesis-driven process because sure, certainly there are things that tend to, I tend to be even more passionate about. And then I'll be up on a panel and say, oh, my goodness, immuno-oncology is way overcrowded. I'll never do an IO deal. And the next week I'll find myself in love with an IO deal because of the entrepreneurs. Sure. Annie? Yeah, no, I, I love that, Cammy. I think that's exactly right. Um, so we, we have this overall thesis that we've, we've had, I mean, I've been working under for almost 20 years, of if it lowers costs and improves quality in healthcare, then I'm in. You know, like that's what we're all about. We have a mission around that statement, and it sounds generic, but it's amazing how true it keeps you in terms of the kinds of companies you invest in and what you're looking at. Because there's so many ways, there are lots of ways to make money in healthcare that don't necessarily support that thesis. Um, and so it's you know, tech enabled solutions and services to payers, providers, uh, pharma, employers. Um, we generally aren't funding things directly to consumers because consumers don't pay except for 23andMe. Let's figure that out uh, and a few others. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, I think what we're what we're trying to do is go after the major pain points in healthcare. Like, where's the cost? You know, like, where are the deep costs? And and some of that is just, you know, massive administrative efficiencies, and a lot of it is on the clinical side. And, you know, what get I mean, on the on the administrative side, I mean, I think simplification of whole payments process, reimbursement. I mean, I'm all in on that because I think it just fundamentally drives behavior at so many levels. And then on the clinical side, I mean, it's really where you're going to reduce costs and improve care for uh, the patient. Um, and it's, you know, it's things like end of life, palliative care, you know, that is an area we're working on with a company Aspire, you know, that's, that's really important and hospice is, is a really wonderful service. It's way underutilized. And if you use palliative care well, you tend to use hospice much better. Mental and behavioral health. I mean, talking about going after major pain points, I mean, behavioral health drives so much of the cost and, and problems in America, whether it's, you know, addiction, uh, or, you know, fundamental behavioral problems, um, if we can focus on that, I mean, you know, you're going after many of the sickest of the sick in America um, and helping and improving the quality of their care and lives and lowering costs. So those are principal themes, but we are inspired every day by entrepreneurs. I mean, that's why they're entrepreneurs and we're VCs. They're the ones actually coming up with the ideas and executing. Absolutely. Adele, the, Annie talked about the value-driven thesis and really important things like palliative care and behavioral health and opportunities there. Yes, and um, so did you want me to comment on that? Oh, yeah, just a, sort of what excites you about at, healthcare yeah, today. Yeah, sure. yeah, so um, there are so many challenges facing healthcare, and with that, opportunities. Um, echoing to Annie's point, cost containment is a very important factor for us, and investing in companies and teams that are focused on cost containment, whether it's a direct solution like an innovative health where they're reprocessing um, products for hospitals or and uh, more coming up with better, um, more improved therapeutics. Another area that we find very exciting 
is um, within niche areas of um, the medical device industry. So we and 3D printing. So we have a company that we founded with one of our operating partners, Tony Koblish, and a um, great CEO, Patrick Tracy, called Oncos. And they do 3D printing of um, bone implants for cancer patients primarily. And um, all bones are not linear. Some have a curve, curve-based design like the pelvis or the scapula. And um, with bone cancer, often the patient needs to have the bone resected. And this company provides um, implants for more challenging cases. And then um, we spent about two years, to Cammie's point of uh, theme-based investing, we spent about two years looking at the diagnostics area, um, trying to identify an opportunity there. And we're investors in a company called Genoptics, which is focused on the cancer diagnostic area. So there um, are so many exciting opportunities in healthcare to provide better solutions, whether they're um, at a cheaper cost or um, just providing a better solution in terms of patient outcomes, like in the Oncos case or the Genoptics case. Absolutely. For those just joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratusha Yalamanchi, and I'm joined today by three leaders in the venture capital space. Feel free to join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. Yeah, uh, Adele, it's interesting the 3D printing that you mentioned. Um, I'm going. I'm actually going into residency in a few weeks, and I'm going into ENT head and neck surgery. And I recently saw um, a patient's mandible being reprinted in 3D printing because, like the scapula, it is round, and it was impressive to see because the 3D imp- printed implant was perfectly fitted, whereas the implants I've seen in the past are kind of one size fits all and never really the right size for the patient that you have at that time. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I feel like it's one of the most exciting areas in terms of patient outcomes. And um, you're seeing it on, on the heart tissue side of, um, and bone side, but you're also, um, you know, the, the movement to printing potentially organs in the future could be quite exciting. And and just building on the idea that we all have pet projects and pet themes, I watched one of my partners in my versant days, a guy named Bill Link, uh, make a lot of hay investing in a bunch of ophthalmology um, companies as ophthalmology was going from a sleepier, more ignored segment of the medical device space and drug space to one that became... um, prolific um, and technology-loving, and I then tried to recapitulate that in dermatology and had some interesting success, and I have a hypothesis that the the same thing can happen to ENT, and we've seen some companies in that space make some hay, but I think there's more hay to be made in ENT, so look forward to your career as you advance into ENT. Oh, I absolutely think that's definitely true. I think that there's just like the anatomy above the clavicle. It's like a small space that is often best accessed via some kind of tools other than just like blunt surgery. So there's so many opportunities for medical devices. And I've seen just like in my time in medical school, so many innovations emerge. So we're definitely not ophthalmology or anything yet, but maybe one day. Mm-hmm. Um. I wanted to just, if all three of you had a moment, I wanted to get your advice for women entrepreneurs, people listening in, any words of advice for them, starting with Annie? Well, I think, I mean, there are a couple of things we look at, whether it's male or female. Um, you know, you can't be a leader without having people follow. So collecting a great team around you, a couple of people who you know, complementary skills, um, and you, and the, you know, two, three, four of you um, should really know more about whatever you're looking at, that particular opportunity space. You know, a, a VC should feel like you know more about that than anybody else in the world. 
you know, this is something we studied and thought about, and you're, um, you know, you're you're going to be the ones to sort of solve this issue. And two, I would say, you know, find a big need. I mean, I think, you know, and we we've seen that. I mean, there's certainly you know been some great you know uh, female leaders in healthcare. There have been some really great you know sort of e-commerce I mean, uh, uh, companies that have been created by women. So look at the, you know, and this is, you know, true for men, too. I mean, a lot of the things we look at are just too small. You know, the, the, the total market, the, you know, the app, the, the opportunity, you know, go after, you know, look at markets with big problems, you know, big, you know, large markets and large problems. And, you know, and try to think about solving that and solving it in, you know, kind of a, um, you know, sort of what an intermediate, you know, sort of short term, near term. And what's the vision, you know, like really provide a vision for the larger opportunity over the long term. Um, and I think it's that, you know, sort of the vision thing with the pragmatism, um, that's very helpful uh, for a VC. Absolutely. So identifying it's an hard, It's hard to uh, add more value than what you just got from Annie. I'll add two things. There, for instance, the A's hire A pluses, B's hire C's that Annie mentioned is absolutely central. Two more ideas for men and women seeking venture capital. One is to demonstrate that you are truth-speaking. It's one of the most critical skills in a CEO. And what I mean by that is you shine a light on potential problems. You're clear-eyed about them. And, yes, you, you find contingency plans, but don't try to hide them. Don't try to shove them under a rug. And the other is get an introduction uh, to venture yeah. capitalists. And I, I do believe that that is where the importance of what we've been talking about in this hour um, hits because um, it is a social psychological phenomenon that we tend to trust people who are similar to us. So it's harder for a woman who is more dissimilar, a female entrepreneur, to uh, get that introduction and to get that feeling of trust in both her competency and everything else. Um, from a male venture capitalist, and hopefully as there's more and more female venture capitalists, um, they will build that, and hopefully in addition, male VCs will increasingly see, uh, understand their unconscious bias and see the competency in female-led companies. Absolutely. Great, great point, Tammy. Great point. Yeah, that introduction is, is quite important. Absolutely. So the great words of advice. I love the diction of being truth seeking and for entrepreneurs out there to identify the unmet need and really be have a long term vision and be knowledge experts um, around your pitch. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all, Adele, Cami and Annie, for taking the time to join us this hour. Um, I'd like to thank our producers, Brian Drew, and our sound engineer for putting on today's show. You've been listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. The show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about our shows and hosts on the Sirius XM website, SiriusXM.com backslash business radio. You've been listening to The Business of Healthcare. I'm Pratusha Yalamanchi, and thank you so much for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.